The material in this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should not rely on this information to make any medical-related decisions. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a doctor-patient relationship, and nothing should be taken as specific medical advice for any given person. I hope you enjoy Marked Medicine. Hey, Mark. I have a question. Okay. How many times do you think I've asked you that question? Do numbers go that high? I doubt it. And from that concept, the idea of marked medicine was born with Dr. Mark Brulte. And with Amanda Brulte, my favorite nurse practitioner. And you're now listening to Marked Medicine. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming back. Um, we are here today with a very special guest, a dermatology guest, Ms. Hallie Brigman, a physician's assistant that specializes in dermatology now. We're super excited about this. She has a wealth of information to share with us today, and you are listening again to Marked Medicine. Hello, Hallie. How are you today? Hey, Mark. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Excellent. And Amanda's here, always ever faithful, my favorite nurse practitioner. And mine too. <laughs> so tell us, Hallie, tell us about your education, your training. How did you end up here? Well, I was born here in Douglas, Georgia, but I went to school at the University of Georgia, got my four-year degree there in biological sciences. And from there, I moved on to the Medical College of Georgia, where I got my master's of physician assistant, and then moved back home to Douglas, Georgia to continue my career path um, with Dr. Brulte in the ER as a start. Well, that was my next question. So what kind of jobs have you had? How long have you been a PA? How long have you been doing this? I graduated in 2011, so about 12 years. And I started out in emergency medicine, which is where I shadowed for a long time to get into PA school. So they were nice enough to let me come back, and I enjoyed it I enjoyed it very much. And I also did some family medicine practice and some pediatrics before I moved into the dermatology world. Really? I, I don't guess I remember that. So you've done a vast array of things. I knew all about the ER, but, um, and now you're doing derm, dermatology? I'm, now I'm doing dermatology, something that I never thought I would do, but here I am and I love every minute of it. And Hallie and I actually worked together in the ER when you were shadowing and, I, and when I was it's an RN. Oh, so many years ago. And Just a, fun, a couple. Yeah. And a fun fact, I actually started shadowing Dr. Brulte and a couple others when I was 16. Wow. Coffee ER. That long ago. <laughs> well, let's back up. So you did ER first once you were done with PA school. I did. And it's incredibly, you know, I've done that for 25 years or, or so. And uh, the experience there and the things you see is just so broad. I mean, it's everything. It Anyone, is. anything, anytime, as the saying goes. And I'm sure that's the experience you had. That is correct. And that's one reason why I went into it first out of school. Because as a physician assistant, you have to learn a lot of, a little about everything. Um, and so I know going into the ER, I would do that or learn a lot about everything. And I wanted to get the most experience I could straight out of the gate. And so overall, just looking back, that's where you started. It's critical care. It's the walking wounded. It's minor illnesses. Sometimes it's nothing. And it's any age from babies to grandmas, you know, it's everything. Do you think that that breadth of experience and exposure to age groups, it, it has helped you overall, no matter what field of medicine you're in, or do you think it was kind of a waste of time as relates to what you're doing now, which is purely skincare? How, how do you view that foundation? No, I think it was absolutely phenomenal to have that foundation. I think that, you know, a lot of things systemically come out in your skin. So we see, you know, a lot of different 
system diseases just in the skin. And so I like to feel like I can, can, I can treat the whole patient, not just their skin, but kind of the whole picture. And I can listen to their story and their background and kind of what's going on with them all around and then better tell how to treat them and their skin problems. So you like to take a holistic approach to patient care, not just look at the problem that they're seeing and just say, oh, that you like to dig down deep. I do. See what the cause is. And it's interesting you say that. I was a dentist before I went to medical school. And I remember in a multitude of the classes and lectures, they would say, you know, any disease that affects the body has oropharyngeal implications and certainly head and neck implications. And so, and and the thrust of dental school is surgical. I mean, you're basically a subspecialty surgeon, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, but there's a lot of medical overlay also. And so- just like they told me that was true, and indeed it was true. There were some smart people that taught me in the past. Uh, I've heard a multitude of other specialists say the same thing, whether they be dermatology or eye doctors. Uh, what a very, very finite little field these ophthalmological surgeons live in. And you almost look and go, well, gosh, that's they're basically eyeball mechanics. They could do this without being a physician first. And how wrong is that? I mean, so incredibly wrong. And and they've all told me, oh, you just would not believe the number of systemic diseases, autoimmune diseases, cancers, et cetera, anything that manifest initially as an eye complaint. And I know this in an ophthalmology lecture, but it's just such a perfect example. And it's the only part of your brain you can actually see. And so it, it's just, I don't... I don't think it matters which field it, it, and certainly the skin is the largest organ in the body that has to hold true with the skin. Correct. We find a lot of things going on with the skin, autoimmune diseases, cancers that are already systemic, um, inflammatory disorders, you know, all that kind of thing. But I think Mark, you and I and Amanda too are a lot alike. You know, we like to take great care of our patients. And I, I think that's where medicine goes wrong a lot is that people don't look at the whole picture. They don't look at what's going, been going on with them, what medicines they've been on, their whole history. And I think if you don't take that into account and how the person's actually feeling, then you don't a lot of times get it right. Exactly. Yes. And that it's interesting you bring that up unprompted because really what started this entire podcast adventure was was exactly what you just said. That concept. Right. And really everything that I've done over the years and the the place I've come to uh, in being a doctor is what would I do if this person were in my own family? It's just that simple. I mean, I, I think the other component of that, because I am I'm a very inquisitive biological scientist and the patients are kind of like my lab. I want to know what's going on with them. I want to see if I can beat the disease. I want to figure it out. I like the physiology and the pathophysiology and the anatomy and it all overlays and there's many layers of all of it. And so my first question is why? Why is this happening? And it may not always be identifiable. And if it's and if it is identifiable, great. Then you can set out a path to correct it, hopefully. Sometimes you can't, but at least you can provide the information and the comfort measures and hopefully the treatment and the cure that the patient needs. So number one is why. And number two is if I can't figure out the why, and even if I can figure out the why, what would I do if they were my own family? And I know that both of y'all are like that, okay? Just very honorable, decent, good people. 
I know you've always had that same bent. Tell me about it. Tell me what you think about that. I know you just did, but tell me again, because it is the core of what we're trying to do here. Well, you know, I learned a lot of that from you and several people that I worked under um, that taught me that if you do what's best for the patient, then that's going to be the ultimate best outcome. Even if you get it wrong sometimes, if you treat the patient like they want to be treated or how you would want to be treated, then the patient's going to keep coming back until you figure it out. And so right. that's what I try to do in my practice. And my boss, Michael Sharkey, um, Dr. Sharkey, who I work for now, he taught me at the beginning, you know, he was like, don't worry you know, about the money. Don't worry about anything. He said, all you have to do is treat people like you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. And and they'll come. Um, when I started my practice, it wasn't super busy. And, and we have gotten that. But I feel like just taking care of patients, how you would want them, your family or you taking care of is the best, your mm -hmm. best bet. And how refreshing it is to hear that so many other providers that we have come in contact with through this adventure actually feel the same way. Because I feel like there's kind of this overarching belief now amongst some members of society that doctors don't care, you know, nurses don't care. They're just kind of there because they have to be. But that's really not the case. There really are still providers that care and take a special interest in taking care of you and your family the way that they want to be taken care of in their time of need. Well, I don't know Dr. Sharkey, but he sounds like a smart guy. Yeah. <laughs> so almost everybody I've worked for, which is great for being a physician assistant, because I've worked for so many wonderful doctors, including Dr. Brulte and Dr. Sharkey now. And um, I just am grateful that they have taught me that, you know, and, and that is my heart too. That's my passion to take care of people and to actually live on them and, and make them a part of our dermatology family. And well, what, what better area for you to exhibit that trait? Because I know sending pediatric patients to you over the years, you know, skin issues are one of the things that drive mamas crazy about their babies. And so what better person to have taken care of their baby and their rash than you? You do have, you, we can definitely tell that that's where your heart is. And now, why dermatology? How dermatology? How did it end up here? We've, we've said the background, we've said the philosophy, we've said some of the history and the experience, which is also impressive, but why? How? Well, I'll be honest with you, and I may have told you this before, but I did not really want to do dermatology. Um, I loved the ER. It was my passion. I liked working there, and I liked the schedule, and I liked the patients, and you know, working for all these amazing doctors and seeing all this stuff that you hear about in medical school, but you know, you see all this crazy stuff, and um Anyway, I really liked it, but I was pregnant at the time that I got a phone call from one of my fellow physician assistant classmates, and it was just kind of a God thing, and Brandon, my husband, had asked me, what, what are we going to do when you have a baby? I said, what do you mean we're going to do? He said, well, you can't work nights and weekends and holidays and all that when you have a family. I'm like, yeah, sure. So anyway, <laughs> I hadn't really thought much more about it. And so Micah was his name. He called one day and he said, hey, don't you want to do dermatology? And I literally said to him, I don't. And he said, what do you mean? Everybody wants to do dermatology. That's like the top residency. You know, everybody wants to schedule. Like, What do you mean you don't want to do dermatology? I was like, look, dude, I work in the ER. I save lives for a living. Like, don't want to do dermatology. <laughs> and so it kind of ended with that. Um, and, and I went back to work and I was just thinking about it, talked to my husband about it. And he called back and he said, look, why don't you come just shadow and see if you want to work with us? He said, I've already told Dr. Sharkey that you're the person for the job. I'm like, dude, I told you I didn't want to do it, you know? So anyway, I did. And I, I went to shadow and, and I actually loved it. And, you know, you can't love something the first day, but I thought, well, I can probably do this and have a family and, and, and like it. And if I don't, 
I can always go back to the ER or I can do ER work on the side. So not a big deal. Um, and so that's how I started my dermatology journey and I haven't looked back. Well, that's pretty cool. And, you know, you mentioned something about saving lives in the ER and that that's true. It's oftentimes like the TV show, only a lot slower, but, uh, you know, you do have dramatic saves and sometimes it's just temporary saves, but it's really not a place that definitive care diagnoses, definitive diagnoses, definitive interventions are made. It's temporizing. It's, you know, treat, stabilize, get to the proper ologist, as I call them, the specialist that needs to see them. But in, in dermatology, let's let's talk about the, the big elephant in the room of dermatology that everybody knows about, which is skin cancer. Yeah. Uh, you probably save more lives now than you did in the ER. I mean, if the truth be known, because, you know, it's just the most common human cancer is skin cancer. And unfortunately, some of them are really deadly, like melanoma, if not caught early. So tell us about that broad topic. I mean, we're going to segue into other things, but I think that is something important that that people need to hear. Well, it's funny you say that because a lot of my patients, every time they come in, they have some sort of like pre-cancer or skin cancer or whatever. My farmers or people that fly or whatever have lots of sun damage. And so they- just took care of my dad, for example. Yeah. (laughs) They like to tease me and say, you just like to cut everything off. Every time I come in here, you cut something off. I, I say, no, Mr. Smith, I am just curing cancer today. You don't want to be walking around with cancer. And so I am curing your cancer, which is a joke, but really true. Um, and so that's kind of funny that you say that. But yes, skin cancer is huge. It is the number one cancer in, in the human population. And so it is very important that we have people that take care of that. And some of them are not not deadly, which is good, but they can be disfiguring and, you know, cause lots of issues like that. And then melanoma, like you said, it can be, can be deadly and can kill kids to 90s, you know. Well, and side note, you made a huge impression on my daddy, which is hard to do in the medical field. He doesn't like any of his doctors or any of his specialists, but he liked you. He said, I tell you, that girl knew what she was doing. She just sent it out and sewed me up and she, she knew what she was doing. Like, I, I knew who to send you to. He's a tough that. audience. You did good if you did that. <laughs> but uh, now... So when you see somebody that has what you're fairly certain is a skin cancer, let's let's go on to melanoma, the deadliest of skin cancers, and you cut it out, you get the path back, it's that's what it is. It's obviously not deep. You've got clean margins or whatever, you know, you've saved them, you fixed them. I mean, that Tell us about the gratification of that. How do you feel about that? I mean, what I mean, what I mean, and I know that oftentimes in the medical field, you may realize deeper and more personally what you've actually done for somebody than the patient themselves because they don't have the medical training and understanding and they haven't seen somebody die of metastatic melanoma spread to the brain and the liver and everywhere else that it goes. I mean, how does that make you feel on the inside when you know you've done this amazing thing for this person and their family ultimately doesn't go to a funeral because of you? Yeah, that is very gratifying and part of the reason why I do my job. I mean, I love to take care of people and I I love that they can come to me with confidence that if they have a cancer, I'm hopefully going to fix it or catch it early so that we can fix it. But it, but it is funny because I've called several patients recently and like, look, Mr. Smith, hey, I was just calling with your path report. You have a melanoma and it's a pretty bad one. Like we need to get you in. And, and last week somebody said, well, I'm going on vacation for about a month. I'll call back whenever I get back. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand Like, we got to take care of it now. We got to come in, you know, we got to get a, get some more margins or whatever, and we got to make sure it doesn't come back. And so you're right. A lot of people don't really understand the magnitude of skin cancer and that skin cancer can kill them. But for me, 
that's what I want to do. And not only take care of them and cure that cancer, but to teach them, hey, this is bad. This is what we need to do. And this is how we prevent it. And it's interesting you say that because I often have this, I have a pretty high success rate of getting the patients in the ER to do what I want them to do. Okay. Which is, I just want them to be better. Okay. So if I think they need to be admitted, they need certain testings, they need certain surgeries. I've developed a way over the years to get them to follow my lead. Well, and if I may to, interject real quick, what, what is that way? Well, I'm about to tell you. Okay. <laughs> so, Please do. And so sometimes I actually have to revert to the philosophy of marked medicine, which is I've got a patient or surrounding family members in the room, you know, and I'm telling them this is, we need to do this because, and, you know, and I, I can feel the hesitance. Everybody that's provided healthcare can feel the hesitance mm-hmm. in the room sometimes. And you're just going, oh, please, give me something to work with. Please let this <laughs> happen properly because mm-hmm. I don't want anything bad to happen to this person. And so I will literally tell them, listen, I have the easiest job in medicine. And, and it is. Oftentimes, ER is the easiest job in medicine. You walk in the room and say, what would I do if this person were in my own family? And usually that fixes the problem that everybody bites off on it. This guy's trying to help. You know, mm-hmm. if that doesn't work, find a daughter or a granddaughter. That always works. <laughs> For sure. I mean, I mean, hands down, they would they would rather face, you know, a den of lions than deal with an angry daughter or granddaughter. But the other thing that works, and you gave an interesting example about the vacation, is I hear that all the time. Oh, I've got my grandchild's birthday tomorrow. I've got, you know, Thanksgiving. I've got, you know, whatever. Insert the fun family activity here. And I look at them and I go, I understand that. And I'm not worried about that birthday. I'm worried about the rest of the birthdays. And usually with those tricks, the success rate approaches 100%. It's never quite 100%. Some people are recalcitrant, but it's a it's a honorable thing that you're trying to do when you convince people that because you do have to take a bigger picture view of your patient's life other than today and tomorrow. I mean, that's that's really what this is all about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny that you say that because I don't know, a lot of you listen to this podcast may not realize we live in Douglas, Georgia, which is very rural. We don't have a lot of specialties here. We don't have a lot of, you know, people that we can just send people to without having to travel two hours away. And so if people have a very bad melanoma, a lot of times we have to do sentinel lymph node biopsies, or we have to do different kind of things, PET scans, make sure they hadn't, it hadn't spread. And I tell some of my patients, look, I think you need to go to Macon um, to get this melanoma taken care of or to get, look at getting a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And they just do not know what to do. You know, they don't have the means to travel or they don't have a car. They don't have the money. And so then you kind of have to get a little creative as far as like Mark was saying, as far as how to get them there or even what you can do in your own practice to increase their chance of survival. Yes. And that back to the eye doctor thing, one of our local eye doctors, there's no ophthalmologist locally. They come in part time. But one of my good friends here is an optometrist. He the the things that he does as a rural op, rural optometrist are mind boggling compared to the typical city optometrist fitting people for contacts, making glasses, et cetera, et cetera. His stories are amazing, and including me as his patient with acute glaucoma mm-hmm. in his office, you know, throwing up in his garbage can and being ridiculous. But uh, um, you know, and but he you had the got, best nurse ever. Yes, that would be you. <laughs> got me through that. Got me to the retina guy and all that stuff. So it it is an interesting thing being a rural healthcare provider. And clearly, you're 
diverse background of patient care, predominantly ER, has to augment your ability to care for these people and give you a much bigger picture view than the little skin lesion that you're looking at right And that vast exposure. Yes, it has definitely come in handy. I mean, it has been... It has been clutch more times than not, for sure. Yes, and and so I know, and and that's all the that's not all the important stuff because there's inflammatory skin conditions and we could run through. We're gonna, we right. could go through a million things about dermatology. It's a it's a huge field of medicine, but you also are starting and have been doing some cosmetic stuff, and so tell us a little bit about that. Yes, and when I started dermatology, I didn't know how huge it was. Um, looking back on my ER experiences, a lot of times, you know, rashes would come in and you just kind of throw whatever at right. them because you don't really know what it is. And then and then you start doing this and you're like, oh, no, I'm the person that's got to figure this out. Um, and the same with cosmetic stuff. And people come in and, and they want to look like Jennifer Lopez or, you know, somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you've got to make them happier. You want to. And so, yeah, I have started doing some more some different cosmetic stuff. I've recently started doing Botox. I say recently about two years. Um, I'm hoping to get training filler soon. And then I also am a saint makeup artist on the side, which kind of goes hand in hand with dermatology and, and helping women really feel the best, like the best version of themselves. Which is so important because, and like last week with Courtney, uh, with her experiences with patients and, and they're, they're often life changing. I mean, people get incredibly self-conscious about the way they look and things and, like that, and and you can be have a huge impact from a mental health standpoint on these people. I know in the ER, you did mental health. It's basically, you know, frontline mental health. I mean, people with in severe crises like that. But now you actually see people, and they have a specific problem: Botox, filler. Well, you know, that's not really my thing. But you you know what those things are, and so. When you see these people and you help them and you actually fix the problem that's causing them mental anguish, tell me about that. I mean, yeah, that that is probably one of the most rewarding parts of my job, and not only with cosmetic stuff as far as like Botox and filler, but also with acne and um, rosacea and psoriasis. And people don't realize the quality of life impact that these skin conditions can have on people. And so, what I've realized is that not only are you taking care of the disease, but really goes back to that you're taking care of the person and so I've found that through like skincare good skincare and fixing or helping fix whatever's wrong with them along with the makeup thing you know kind of the whole picture people if they feel better about themselves their attitude's going to change and even if they have a chronic illness their outlook on that changes and that's huge I mean that is huge if I can change somebody's outlook on the chronicity of their disease right and it's like by no means are we saying you know oh, you you should wear makeup to be beautiful or you should get Botox to be beautiful. But instead, what we're saying is that exactly what you said, we take a holistic approach when we provide patients with this type of care, when you provide patients with this type of care and you help them figure out what may be causing their problem and then also help them do some things or implement some practices that may help work on their self-esteem as well while you're working on underlying condition and you touched on it the teenage acne and accutane uh, that's the trade name i guess it's one of the the retinoids retinoids treat acne so successfully you there's no way to prove that you've altered the trajectory of somebody's life but you have 
these people oftentimes, and look, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm certainly not a an adolescent psychiatrist, but I do know that when people are in their formative years and they have such a visible problem that when you're all you're trying to do psychologically is fit in while you develop your own personality and psyche to become the person that you're going to be. And it's clearly documented that the in in the Western European and American type societies, advanced societies, that your psyche is cemented about age 25. Okay, so you've got from uh, puberty to age 25, that 12, 15 year period, whatever it is, um, to get a person solidified as the person they're going to be and the things they're going to ultimately achieve in life. So you literally take somebody that's 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 trying to fit in and has this visible problem and you change that. You don't, there's no way to prove what you're doing so wonderful for this person's life. But I mean, some of these people may not have even gone to school and done the things that they could. I mean, once again, you're taking a bigger, a step back, bigger picture view of the patient than oftentimes the patient themselves even realizes. Tell me about that. I mean, tell me about how these teenage acne patients feel and the difference you see in them and the changes in their behavior. And you've got to have some cool stories about that. Yeah. And as you said before, you know, taking care of patients, I had to kind of retrain my thought process because taking care of patients in the ER is the emergent kind of thing. Take care of this now. It can't wait. Once you get into the dermatology field, it's more of a chronic, um, I don't say chronic, but a long-term care kind of practice. And I'm not talking about like nursing home, long-term care, but I mean, these patients that you have, like you said, you see them from babies to teenagers, to, to young adults, to elderly. And so, you know, it is very crucial when you're taking care of these kids. And I've had several um, with terrible, terrible inflammatory acne, cystic inflammatory acne, so much so that they don't want to go to school. They don't want to go to church. They they don't want to talk to boys or girls or whatever because they are so self-conscious about their skin. And not only that, but it causes them discomfort when you have that kind of thing. You know, it's painful. It's oozy. It's always just looks terrible. And so not only do they have like mental, but physical problems, anguish with it too. And so when you can take somebody like that and actually almost, you know, 90% of the time cure this problem, it is amazing. And, you know, whereas in the ER, you don't get to follow these people. Like a lot of times you never see these people again. I get to see these people back in my office, see how they're progressing, not only skin-wise, but also mentally. And you can just see the happiness, the, um, the anxieties less, the depressions less, their social skills are so much better once you start even getting them better. Maybe they're not even 100% better yet, but once they start seeing a difference, it is amazing at how much of a like, transition their mental health becomes, their attitude, their personality. And so to see that and to see somebody just excited about life again mm-hmm. as a teenager is amazing. Well, Hallie, if you ever need any affirmation that you are leaving a lasting impact on your patients, I sit here at 38 years old, and I was, I still remember being that teenage girl with the horrible, disgusting cystic acne, because that's what you feel like. I'm not saying it's disgusting. I'm just saying that's what you feel like. I'm just this disgusting person with this disgusting acne, and I still think very fondly of the wonderful dermatologist that helped me at that time. We didn't even have dermatology here in Douglas, and we had to travel to Brunswick, Georgia. Dr. Grooms, he was just one of the nicest guys on planet Earth, and my grandmother and I would make our monthly trip to Waycross to get my blood drawn, and then after that, our monthly trip to Brunswick to get my prescription, and I mean, I I still look back, and I'm just 
truly thankful every day for what that did for me. It was life changing. And so I know that there will later in your career, there will be people who have, you know, 10, 15 years from now, they will not forget you and what you're doing for them. Well, thank you, Amanda, for for saying that. And that's truly what medicine should be about. It should be about impacting patients' lives. And that kind of brings us back to we are in a rural rural environment. Um, you are going to see your patients. You already mentioned that you see them long-term in the office. You also see them in town. And so it is a whole lot better to have them be happy when they see you. And so it kind of brings us back to the philosophy, you know, do what you need to do for this person as if they're your own, because in a way they are your own. So how do, I mean, tell me about some of your interactions in town, because I know it happens to you. It has to. It happens all the time. And in fact, my husband, he gets frustrated sometimes when we go to Dairy Queen to get ice cream and there's five people lined up to talk to me. I know that happens to you too, Mark. But And I say, it's okay. It's just, you know, a testament to that they love me and that they want to tell me about their problems and that I'll listen. Because you'd be surprised. Some people just need somebody to listen to them. Um, And a lot of doctors don't have that. um, They don't have that. Yeah. Or, you know, that reputation, I guess I should say, of listening to their patients. They just kind of come in, say, what's going on today, Mr. So-and-so? Okay, well, we'll write this medicine, this medicine, this medicine, and, and you can be on your way. And I've found that a lot of times if you just listen to the patient and try to figure out, you know, what's going on in their lives and and what's happening with their family and what, you know, what their husband's doing or their kids, and that that goes a long way with people not only in it sets the mood. That's right. And then they trust you, like mm-hmm. you were talking about earlier. Right. They trust you they trust you to take care of them and they trust you to take care of their whole family, which is is wonderful. And so, you know, I see these people out to eat and I see these people in Walmart and, and they do not hesitate to pull up their shirts or pull pull down their <laughs> pants or whatever to show me what they have on their body, which is is funny and, and entertaining at the same time. But but I love it. I love my patients. And, you know, one thing that I love about dermatology is the satisfaction of helping my patients, you know, truly making a difference in their lives. And that's why I keep doing it. So we're kind of back to the philosophy. You be nice to them. You treat them like your own. You treat them like you're your mama. Your mama's going to always cut you some slack. That's right. So you start treating people like that and they're going to cut you slack. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the huge thing here with that is it does give you a second swing at the ball, okay? Yes. And maybe you did miss something. Maybe you didn't do a good enough skin exam. Maybe you didn't take enough history to go, hey, maybe this is a lupus rash and I need to do this blood work. But you get another chance to do that because they like you and they come back and they trust you and they know that you're going to dig and dig and dig until you find the problem. Mm-hmm. And I know that's what you do. I know that's what Amanda does. It's what I try to do. I, I you do I think it. I do. I mean, <laughs> I learn from the best. <laughs> well, I don't know about Same that. Girl. But uh, so, I mean, I do think that the philosophy has to permeate the education, the training, the experience, and the knowledge base. Because what good is the scaffolding of all that if you're not using it? Mm-hmm. If you can't use it because they won't come see you, they won't they mm-hmm. won't interface with you in the way that you need them to interface. It's a very personal business being mm-hmm. a healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, people tell you things that they won't tell their spouse or they their don't. parents or their siblings or mm-hmm. it's 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 an odd and weird thing to have this human interaction and and it's um it's important. Mm-hmm. It's precious. It's a privilege. It is. It's it is. it's not a right. Okay. 
and it's not to be taken for granted. It's not to be taken lightly. And so I think you do a great job at that. Thank you. And so I think you do as well, and Amanda. And, and I think it's even more visible and important in a rural environment. And and that's where we are. And so I, I don't know if you have anything left to say about that. Maybe I said it all. Maybe I didn't. But I know you have experiences that you'd love to relate. We want to hear them. I mean, we do. Well, a lot of times patients are so anxious or terrified about going to the doctor and telling people what's wrong with them. And if they don't trust you or they can't talk to you, they're not going to tell you what's going on. I've had people with hydratinitis suppurativa, which is a chronic inflammatory condition where people get abscesses in their groin, abscesses under their arms, that kind of thing. And they've been to so many doctors that told them it had to do with inconsistent hygiene. It had to do because they were dirty. It had to do because they were wearing the wrong clothes. Anything like that, that kills people's self-esteem. And this is a chronic problem that lots of people deal with and it literally ruins their life. It ruins their quality of life. And so they get to me and they don't even want to show me. They don't want to show me the areas that they have going on. They don't want to tell me about it because for years, I'm talking 10 plus years, people have just told them they're dirty. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you get these types of patients that are already mentally Worn out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Their self-esteem is so terrible. They don't want to tell anybody else their story. They don't want to show anybody what they have going on because they're just afraid they're going to hear the same story. And so with those kind of people, the same thing, you really have to fix their condition, but you more so have to fix their mental health. You have to fix their self-esteem. Mm-hmm. You have to fix their confidence. And you have to let them know, look, I know you've had bad experiences with these other doctors. And a lot of times there's nothing wrong with those physicians. They just aren't educated on the disease. Mm -hmm. which is why you're here with me. We're going to take care of you. It's going to be fine. And no, it's not probably 100% curative, but we can help you. Mm -hmm. We can get you back to the quality of life that you want. And that makes a huge difference if you can relate to people in that manner. It does. And just that reassurance that you can give that patient, because one of my very best friends, I have heard her say so many times with her own child who has recurrent... um, in Patago, yeah. you know, I wash the sheets, I bathe her, I promise we're not, I'm like, you don't have to say that. I know you're not dirty. I know you wash the sheets. I know you bleach the bathtub. I know you do all of those things far many more times than I do. I know, but just building that connection with that person, you know, yes, she is my friend, but she also trusted me to take care of her children. But you can build that same level of trust with your patients and they can have that same type relationship that's kind of the goal here is to build that same type relationship with the patients so that you can help reassure them in those times and help them really come back and get the help that they need that you can provide educate them on you know what's really going on and I like to tell my patients look I'm not perfect and it may take me a month or two to fix this I may not you know it may not happen with the first medicine we try the second medicine we try but a lot of times I figured out if I give them a we're going to do this. And if that doesn't work, we're going to do this. We're going to do mm-hmm. this. We're going to do this so that they know you're trying to help them. It just makes and you, you talk about other providers, doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners, whatever. And there's a lot of interplay as a specialty um, type provider with general practice. And so tell me, tell me about your interplay and interrelationships with some of the generalists here in town and are they're sending you people? Is there a lot of back and forth? Is it just dumped in your lap? And I don't want to see that again. Where how, how does that, cause I know you're such a personable 
individual, people like you, you're very good at what you do, you're very intelligent, you're very, uh, you're just adept, okay? So how does that work with your relationship with other practices? I did a lot practices? of dumping in Hallie's lap. <laughs> <laughs> well, Send I kind of people. People. get a little of both. No, I, you know, that's another great part about rural medicine is that I know most of the internists in town and I know most of the family medicine practice practitioners in town. They are very good to me. They are part of the reason why I have the business that I have because they trust me as well. And so I don't mean to bash on other PAs, providers when I say, you know, that I, I just mean a lot of people their specialty is not dermatology. And so they are not educated as, you know, much well, they, as... They've not made it their their life's mission to really focus on dermatological issues. Right. And so it's hard to know everything about everything, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, you know, I don't mean to sound that ugly to them because I love the relationship that I have with my other providers, people mm -hmm. that refer people to me. And so they've been very good. And, and a lot of times they'll say, hey... I've got this patient. What can I do until I can get them to you? Right. And so they'll t text me a picture. They'll call me and say, Mr. So-and-so has this, this, and this. What can I do for him in the meantime so he's not so miserable so that I can get him to you and get the appropriate treatment? And I admire that because, like you say, I'm going to do what's best for the patient at the time. And a lot of times I can't see him right then. But they are, have been wonderful and send me all the patients. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes, you know, they send me. Some that I'm like, whoa, some doozies, some doozies. <laughs> but that's okay too. We treat them just like that's anybody right. else. We love them and, and want to take care of them. So they have been wonderful. Well, this kind of brings up now that we're talking about other um, types of providers and physicians and everything. The, another thing that has changed in dermatology and medicine in general is some of the disease modifying drugs, whether you're talking about rheumatological or autoimmune diseases, many of which are manifest with 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 uh, skin problems. And so now are y'all managing some of the um, like psoriatic, um, the anti-psoriatic drugs or y'all sending them to in conjunction with room or tell me about some of that overlap and how, how y'all are doing that now? Yes. So we actually do the biologic drugs for multiple different things. Now um, we do them for psoriasis. We do it for, you know, all the kind of auto, autoimmune diseases, lupus, that kind of thing. Rheumatoid. Yeah, rheumatoid arthritis, which is not really my forte. Right. And a lot of people have psoriatic arthritis, which again, that's more rheumatology. But a lot of these drugs simultaneously treat both. Correct. And so we will have a good relationship with the rheumatologist to kind of fix whatever they have going on with their skin. But also, you don't want to just treat one part. Like we said before, you want to treat their joints too. And so, yeah, we will, I'll call and consult with these guys and or these ladies, and they have been wonderful as far as, you know, collaboratively taking care of our patients. And these drugs, you know, a lot of family medicine practitioners and internal medicine people don't feel comfortable prescribing these drugs. And like we said, I'm the only dermatologist, well, we're the only dermatology practice in town. I do have a partner, but when so it kind of falls on us, you know, and which is good because these are life-changing drugs. The biologic drugs can be very life-changing. And they have gotten much better over the years as far as side effects and that kind of thing go. And so I actually feel more comfortable about putting my patients, even with lots of chronic illnesses, on these drugs. And that's exactly the point I was about to make. And I certainly don't know which ones block which tumor necrosing factor or this interleukin or that. You know, I mean, I read about the drugs individually as a patient comes in with a complication or a, or a, a different illness and this has impact on it. And then I forget it because I don't prescribe them every day. Sure. But they have... I've noticed that looking back that they have become much more targeted, much more specific and much less broad in their immunosuppressant 
um, effect. So I don't, I was seeing with some of the earlier uh, iterations of the biologicals and disease modifying drugs, I was seeing a lot of septic complications, not a lot, but some, some. people would get septic. I mean, literally septic and, and nearly die. You know, I've never seen somebody actually die from one of these, but, um, and be, but be put in the ICU on pressors, massive fluids, et cetera, every antibiotic on demand, you know, <laughs> things like that. So I have dealt with some of the complications of these drugs when they first started, they do seem to be much, much more targeted now for specific diseases and and specific molecules that need to be inhibited to stop certain processes causing whatever problem with a certain type of rheumatological or autoimmune process. And I do agree with that. That's I, I didn't I've never actually heard somebody that prescribes these things tell me that, but it makes sense because that's what I've seen over the last twenty years. Well, and I'll be honest, from my experience in the ER where you see the most or the most life-threatening things or the worst cases, mm -hmm. you tend to lean towards that. So when I first started dermatology, I was kind of like, oh, I don't really want to mm -hmm. prescribe those drugs. Um, the FDA says they cause cancer and they cause all these serious infections, which they can. And so I was kind of leery of it. But then when you see 60 patients a day and mm -hmm. you see all these people and the mental part that comes with the disease, mm -hmm. you kind of have to weigh out the benefit, right? Mm -hmm. So I have teenagers and I have, young adults who won't go out in public because they have psoriasis and pre prior to these therapies all you could do was steroids which is terrible for you right topically mm -hmm. um a lot of times it doesn't work doesn't it only works for a short period of time they're bathing in all these creams all day every day and sometimes it still doesn't work and you know systemic steroids aren't good for you long term and that mm -hmm. kind of thing and so as it's developed over time and as i've seen more and more patients with these diseases or these disorders that are literally affecting their quality of life I have become more comfortable with prescribing them because of the fact that we talked about before I want to make the patient better you want to make them better and so the drugs have gotten better which makes me more apt to prescribe them to these patients and then just seeing the patient when you, when they're almost 100% body surface area covered with psoriasis and you put them on one of these drugs and they come in three months later and they don't have a single plaque on them. It's amazing. Yeah. Just, it's they're, just truly amazing. They're certainly not living a no-risk life in that state anyhow. Correct. I mean, so you're once, gonna you, get... once you break down your skin barrier, right. you're more risk for infections and that kind of thing. And that's what people don't really understand. And right. so with these newer drugs, even during COVID, we didn't see a lot of you know serious complications mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as far as, as uh, secondary illnesses mm -hmm. go. Well, and you're right whenever you said, you know, you kind of have to weigh the benefits and the risk, which I know goes along with anything. But again, going back to being the teenager with acne, you know, I can sit back now and say I have no regrets weighing the benefits and the risk of the treatment that I was on because we all know the benefits and risk of Accutane and where I'm at today. And I would do it again over and over again. And I feel like I can't speak for all patients, certainly, but I can at least speak for myself and I feel like I can speak for a lot of them and say that you're more than willing to if you if if it you're have trust in your provider and your provider says, Hey, I think the benefits outweigh the risk, they're ready for it. And once they get to me, I'm kind of the last step, you know. <laughs> there a lot of them are are serious. And so we we throw these I say throw, but we give them these biologic drugs. Somebody's got to do it. So yeah, they, it's really an incredible thing that has been invented. It's, it's amazing. I mean, to have watched it's, it's, you know, and, and y'all are both 
crazy smart people. And I know that y'all understand what I'm about to tell you, but there are other healthcare providers. Everything is individualized. There is no cookbook medicine that works for everyone. So Mm -hmm. if you have a patient with HIV that has had a previous splenectomy that is on chronic steroids and has diabetes, you're certainly not going to throw a biological agent at them. Which is why I said when you consult with your provider, when your provider decides that the benefits outweigh the risk. Absolutely. So, I mean, and that's obviously a worst case scenario example. Um, I have seen gross mismanagement like that. Not often. I, I think that most people are better than that. But so, and I know you're certainly bright enough and experienced enough to know what to do and who it's indicated in and contraindicated in. And that's a very important point. And to that's make. not to say that there are not things that, you know, that's not to say that we won't find something that will help people who have underlying conditions because we will do our very best to find something to help. Like you said, each individual situation, you look at the whole picture and you find, you will find something that works. Yeah. And it's just like the retinoids for acne. I mean, and I, off the top of my head, I know there's liver issues, potentially there's obviously the pregnancy issue. It's category X or double X or whatever it is you can't get pregnant on. Uh, there's also the raised intracranial pressure, I think. Is that one of them? So, I mean, if somebody comes in with a pseudotumor already, you're not going to give them acne, you know, a retinoid. Uh, so I know you see a an array of people, but certainly you've had people with contraindications and you have to deliver the news of, I can't provide that for you. And And, and and a lot of times they are understanding as long as, you know, you kind of provide them with some sort of plan. Like, and I like to be honest with them, just like, you know, look, I may not be able to cure this or fix this a hundred percent, but I think we can take steps to make you better. Right. Um, We can work on it. And honestly, some of the newer drugs are so targeted that even people with these chronic conditions, we're actually, you know, with lots of follow-up and and communication and that kind of thing, able to fix a lot of things we used to couldn't. It is crazy. In the ER, I'll see these people and they'll have some drug and it's got invariably has the, the, the trade name of the drug on there and I've never heard of it. And I look it up because I'm trying to put this person in the hospital. They've got some horrible problem medically and I'm trying to figure out what it's contraindications are and what I may need to do to them or not do. And, and I read how the drug works and the specificity with the, the targeting of the, of the molecule that they're trying to stop or promote or whatever is mind boggling. I mean, there are people out there inventing this stuff that are ridiculously intelligent. I mean, and, and you look at, at people like that, I don't even know who they are, but I mean, there's people out there doing this and they inventing are. this stuff and discovering this stuff. And, it, and it's the, and it's the, and, you, and then you look at some of the, the horrific ends of humanity, the, the tragedies and the man-made tragedies and everything. And go, how can this even be the same species? How can somebody in a lab somewhere be doing something so amazing that requires such a level of an intelligence and understanding of, of molecular biology and everything that they can invent this stuff to help other people. And then on the other side of the planet, they're doing these horrible things to people and committing these atrocious acts. I'm not trying to be political here, but you get it. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it is, it is incredible to watch this evolution of knowledge and interventions that are at our, I mean, obviously I don't prescribe these, but at our fingertips as providers. And, and how many years have you been doing Durham? Uh, Eight. So you've been doing it a long time now. So you've seen changes even in eight years. I mean, and. and Yeah. And there's more coming. They, you know, they tell us kind of 
you're not supposed to tell you this, but you know, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Um, and so there's more coming. And that's the beauty with medicine in general. It's always evolving. It's always changing and it's always exciting. There's no limits to what you can learn. Now, y'all both know me reasonably well, and I would sit here and talk about diseases and drugs and interventions and physiology and pathophysiology for, I don't know, say the next couple of decades. But And general dermatology, There's you could you could talk about that forever. And there's we, more coming. There's yes, more coming. we intend to have you back for a huge general dermatology podcast. But I do want to bring this kind of back to the self-esteem, mental health impact, interrelationships with um, your other provider community and the patients and family members you see out there in the world, outside of the office, and how all that ties together, and any advice you could give to other practitioners regarding all of this, the 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 mental health impact of skin di- disorders and, and the severity of it on patients. I don't think some people understand that are in medicine that, oh, oh, it's they look and they see a couple of pimples. Well, and, it may, be, like, and it may be all that person sees when right. they look in the mirror and, and the impact that it has on their lives and the advice you can give to other practitioners to pay attention to that. And do they need to pull the trigger on sending the patient to you or, or dig deeper into the problem or whatever? I mean, just springboard off that and tell me, tell me something philosophically about that. Yes. I think it's important, first of all, to realize or to talk to the patient and see, you know, is this something that's truly bothering them? And people can be kind of vague, you know, like I've got this acne and I've tried a couple treatments and that kind of thing. And, you know, you don't have to know everything about the treatment, but what I encourage you to do is, like we said before, do what's best for the patient or what you would want somebody to do for you. And so regardless of if you think it's not terrible or whatever, you have to take their considerations into, you know, your own and try to figure out the right treatment for them. So probably the biggest thing that I see is the timeliness of referral. And mm-hmm. what I would say is if you treat the patient a couple of times and they're not getting better or you see the patient's mental state about whatever they got going on acne psoriasis whatever kind of dwindling down and Mm -hmm. it's not getting any better then pick up the phone and call your dermatologist see what to do until they can get Mm -hmm. you in or just go ahead and refer them and so a lot of times dermatology is kind of far out I mean maybe even six months in some places you know so I would take that in consideration too and just literally figure out the best plan in the interim and if that means consulting with a dermatologist I never mind talking to somebody about what to do about a patient and and I may say this is what I would do based on the picture, what you're telling me, but I really need to see the person firsthand, mm-hmm. but at least you have something to go on. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that would be super important. And I feel like the patient feels a hundred percent better if they have a plan, mm-hmm. not just they gave me some medicine, didn't really listen to me. And now mm-hmm. what? It's not working. Now what do right. I do? And a lot of times when people feel like that, they won't go back. Right. They won't go back for a second yeah. time. And then they're just stuck if and they, they don't know what to do, you know? Right. If they sense complacency or if they don't feel validated, then they're not coming back. Right. So I would say, first and foremost, take the patient's feelings into your, you know, that would be first. And then figure out, how bad is it bothering you? What have you tried? What treatments have you tried at home? Obviously, you don't want to just say, oh, go get some benzoyl peroxide over the counter if they've already tried benzoyl peroxide. You right. Know, for their acne. Go get some salicylic acid. So kind of in depth, once again, a, a personal history, what they've tried, what they've filled. How are they feeling about it? What can we do to make it better? And then do you want to see a dermatologist? You know, I feel like people don't get asked that enough. Like, would you like me to refer you to a dermatologist? Would you like me to refer you to a rheumatologist? Whatever. Um, And I think that means the world to patients if you care. And 
and I always ask this of uh, nurse practitioners and physicians assistants, you do have a physician backup. You do yes. have, you do have a guy you can call. I mean, mm -hmm. a guy, a girl, whomever. Yeah. And so you have other resources you can bring to bear sure. to a problem if, if you feel like you're not achieving the success you need to achieve for this person, correct? Of course, they're available to me 24 seven. They are, and my my docs are so good. They they are always ready to help me. They kind of have a philosophy like we do. They want what's best for the patient. And so I can text them, I can call them, I can do whatever anytime, even if they're not in office. And and they are amazing as far as if I need a second opinion. And, and you know, as good as I do, you know, one opinion is not always good. Sometimes two or three people talking about the same thing is best right. for the patient. Right. And I and it's funny you bring that up because I cannot stress enough that as a nurse practitioner or as a physician's assistant, my advice would be to first and foremost, always be very quick to call the doctor that you work with. Don't be shy about it. You know, if your doctor makes you feel insecure about it, you know, I don't know. Find a new job. I don't know what else to say. I mean, you need that relationship with the doctor. It's a great relationship. It's one to be thankful for and proud of. I love having that backup and that partner. Well, and I'll be the first to tell my patients that I don't know everything. I think that's right. good that they know that. And, but I do have somebody I can call and not only my physicians that I work under, but like Dr. Brulte, um, or like some of the people we talked about, the internal medicine guys, they know a lot more about stuff than I do as far as systemic stuff. And so a lot of times I'll say, Hey, call them. You know, I think this blood pressure medicine's causing this issue. Can I take them off or can we change them or whatever? And, you know, that is amazing that we can, communication's key. I feel like with anything, communication's and, key. And you don't just have brain backup with some of your physicians. You have surgical backup. You, there's often going to be lesions in an office that you can't deal with. And they, I assume that you're, you're part of a fairly big practice, I believe. Yes. And, and they have surgical capacity. I don't know if it's a surgery center or a surgery suite or whatever, where they can do Mohs procedures. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. you, you have the capacity surgically to refer that person to your backup physicians to deal with problems that though you may have brilliantly right. diagnosed it, you now can't mechanically fix it. Mm -hmm. So am I correct about that? For sure. Yes, I can do simple surgeries and you know, excisions and that kind of thing. But we do have some very great Mohs surgeons. We don't have a Mohs lab here in Douglas. Um, and so I have to refer to them a lot. And and they're grateful for my referrals and treat my patients and send them back to me, <laughs> which is always good. That's right. And that's Mohs, M-O-H-S, by the way, that's right? right? So who would have ever thought that just going into dermatology, you would be doing so much mental health and, and, and helping people. And that's probably at the forefront almost it a is. lot of times. It is. It is. Yes. And, you know, some of my, some of my MAs and stuff kind of get mad or make fun of me. They're like, baby, your patient's too much. You just spend too much time with them. I'm like, no, mm -mm, there's no such thing. And so that's, I, I take pride in that. I, I say, I'll take that as a compliment. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it, it is a privilege, not a right. You are correct. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, I know one of the things that you do that really helps impact self-esteem is Botox. You touched on it a little bit earlier. Yeah. You did my Botox recently, and I feel like it looks pretty good, if I say so myself. Phenomenal. It, it I don't really, know who did it, but it looks um, good. You did. You did. You did, girl. That's all you. And if I must say, I'll probably use a little less Photoshop in my pictures for the next couple of weeks. I, I feel like I'm looking pretty good. But I feel like some of our listeners may want to know, is Botox safe? Well, as with anything that we've talked about, there are side effects to any drug and Botox 
you know, is one of those. For the most part, yes, it is very safe and is actually used not only to fix our wrinkles, Amanda, um, but mm-hmm. also for medical issues like uh, migraines and, exactly. gym, you know, uh, sort of colis and muscle mm-hmm. problems and that That's kind right. of thing. And so it is safe in the majority of the people. I think I've had one person that had a Botox reaction and can't do, can't do it anymore. But for the majority... It is relatively safe. It All it does is paralyzes the muscles that you inject it into mm-hmm. so that they can't move. And so it just stays kind of locally, not really systemic. And it, the good news about Botox is it wears off in about, you know, three months, three mm-hmm. to four months. And so if you do have an issue with it, then it's going to go away. Mm-hmm. you have anything to add to that, Mark? Well, Botox is a very uh, fascinating topic in and of itself. It's the most potent toxin known to man. Yeah. But... But like all um, things, say nuclear energy to produce electricity, incredibly, potentially incredibly dangerous, but look at what it can do. Mm-hmm. The deadly toxin and harness it. These back to the researchers that invent this stuff. I just have the utmost respect for those people that do this. I mean, the 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 mind-blowing intellectual capacity that some of these people have to overcome these problems and to produce something like that that benefits humanity. It's just, it's actually incredible. I mean, I can help people one at a time. They help masses of humanity at a time. It's 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 Amazing. really quite a story. I mean, mm-hmm. all of these things are quite a story. Actually, Nick, our sound guy, who does not get any accolades, and he should get all accolades because he's the one that makes all this happen. He asked because of some family members, younger family, female family members of his have had acne issues and there have been um, potential or concerns about interactions with the treatments, the medical treatments they're getting and the makeups they use and the concealers and you know, the stuff I don't understand. I mean, is is that a real thing or is is there something? Because I know you're doing the makeup line now, too. And uh, uh, Tell us about that. So I would say that you have to be careful when choosing a makeup product if you have something like acne or some rosacea, inflammatory skin condition. But I wouldn't say that the treatments that we have really affect the makeup. Treatments we use like doxycycline and Accutane and retinol and benzoyl peroxide, they make you like more sun sensitive and make you peel a little bit, maybe make you a little bit more red, that kind of thing. But as far as like interaction with makeup and stuff, no. But I do think that if you have these sort of issues, you need to pay close attention as mm-hmm. to what you're putting on your face, which is one of the main reasons why I love Saint Makeup, which is the makeup that I sell on the side or am an ambassador for on the side because it is a cream-based makeup and it is very moisturizing for your skin. It's non-comedogenic, which means it doesn't make acne worse or even cause acne. Mm -hmm. And it is meant to be one layer, not like cakes of makeup on your face, which you never want to do. And it is actually kind of like anti-aging. And we like to say that we don't use makeup to hide your face. We Mm -hmm. use makeup to enhance your... And that goes back to the whole self-esteem thing. And so that is why I love Saint and I love that company. And there are lots of makeups out there that people just don't realize. You know, mm-hmm. they see stuff on TikTok or they see stuff on Instagram and they just buy it all. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. they, they start, start with they don't it. know where to start. They don't care that somebody on TikTok did it and they put all this stuff. This is what I'm seeing a lot lately with the TikTok trends and that kind of thing is that people get all this stuff because somebody on TikTok said, right. and it actually ruins your skin barrier. And so you're using all these benzoyl peroxides and acids and all these harsh chemicals on your face, makeup, all that kind of thing, all at one time. Mm -hmm. And then your face explodes. 
you know, your acne gets worse. (laughs) Um, And then you're like, oh, no, I don't know what to do. And so I would just encourage you to research what you put on your skin, just like Mm -hmm. anything else. And make sure that, like I said, it's not going to be harmful to your skin. It's going to be moisturizing. It's not going to worsen your acne, that kind of thing. And I feel like with any treatments that we do, the Saint Makeup is by far the best one to use um, as it's not going to cause any concerns with medicine or treatments or even skin issues. Well, and people should research what they're putting on their skin, but that brings up a great topic. I know that you provide a wealth of knowledge on skincare. Tell our listeners how they can find you in order to get these great tips and more of your knowledge and your experience that they can, how can they find you? Sure. And let me rehash something. I feel like you can treat all the acne you want or all the skin conditions you want, but unless a patient has a base knowledge of a good skincare regimen, Mm -hmm. it's not going to work. And so I like to educate lots of my patients or all of my patients on what to and what not to do for their skin as far Mm -hmm. as skincare or body Mm -hmm. skincare, face skincare, whatever, because I feel like that's the foundation. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I think that's important. And I do have um, lots of resources and ways to reach me online. Mm -hmm. I have a website, www.halliebrigman.com, and there you can find a link to my skincare consult, which tells you what products you need based on what's going on with your skin. If you're oily, dry, whatever, if you have acne or melasma or whatever, I will actually personally recommend products for you. Right. I also have a free color match on my website where if you want to try Saint Makeup, then I can color match you and get the right colors for whatever you have going on, rosacea, redness, acne, whatever. And also like my favorite products, there's something called Shop My Shelf on my website and you can go and I have listed exactly what products I like for eczema or psoriasis or oily skin or dry Mm -hmm. skin or whatever. And there's lots of combinations of skincare regimens there. Mm -hmm. And I know you provide lots of just daily tips. Am I right? Yeah. And is it right to think of skincare in this way? I read this once, or maybe Mark, you did. I'm not sure that in the morning you should think of protecting your skin, and in the evenings you should think of repairing your skin or like with the products that yeah, with the products that you use. And I know that you go more in depth with those types of tips. Correct. Yes, I like. I have an Instagram um, where I share a lot of dermatology stuff, and tips and tricks and that kind of thing and some makeup stuff there too and I have a Facebook page that kind of thing and my Instagram handle is at Hallie Brigman and uh, you can message me privately on there I love I just love to help people so whatever you know mm-hmm. whatever questions you have I'll mm-hmm. be happy to answer and how could people find you if they need to see a dermatologist I work for Georgia Dermatology and Skin Cancer in Douglas Georgia and we have tons of offices to make sure you know to pick the Douglas one although all of them are really good for Hallie Brigman. And just one closing question, comment, because I've watched it in Amanda. I know what's inside myself when you help somebody or save somebody or whatever. We've talked a lot about the mental health of the patient, but what does that do for you? Well, it keeps me coming back every day. And and I see lots of patients that have not gotten that, like I said, for years. And, and when they come to me and I can provide that and I can be their friend along with their dermatologist. It, it just makes it all worth it. You know, I have two small kids at home. I have a husband at home. And, and a lot of times, not going to say that I would rather be with them because that's not the case, but I miss a lot of things mm-hmm. working. But to be able to provide people with true, you know, passionate care and to see them get better and to see them flourish in, in society just makes makes it all worth it. Mm-hmm. What a perfect answer. I mean, 
Well, I was actually sitting here thinking how genuine your answer just was because every time that we start one of these episodes, everybody's always a little nervous. You know, you think about the words that are coming out. You want to make sure that you sound okay, but that flowed very naturally. That was very genuine. We can tell that you really mean it. Well, I, I, I truly am passionate about what I do and, and caring for people. And I want, I want people to see that. Thank you, do. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for having me. It's been so we much fun. We can't wait to have you back. I hope it. so. Yes, we'll, thank you. We'll go into some deeper dermatology subjects in the future. Thank you so much. We can't wait. Well, Mark, the American Academy of Dermatology has designated each November as National Healthy Skin Month, so I'm super thankful that Hallie joined us for this episode. What better way to kick off November than to have someone who specializes in dermatology to join us on our show? But now it's time for my favorite part of the show, the Phone of Friends segment. And this one's going to be a little different than usual because instead of asking you questions from our listeners, Mark, I would actually like for you to talk about a topic that has been very important in your life and I know very important in many other people's lives. I would like for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your rosacea, but specifically I would like for you to go in detail about how rosacea has impacted you and your self-esteem. Well, it's, it's, I don't know if everybody knows what rosacea is, but it's onset age 30 to 50, kind of middle-aged, and you start getting acne or reddening of the skin of the face across the nose, the cheeks, and the forehead, and the chin. And I'd say five, six, seven years ago, I started getting, I just thought it was bumps, acne, you know, and pimples, whatever you want to call it. And it's, it's, I didn't really have acne as a teenager, but oh my gosh, it's just, you just get consumed with worrying about the one little pimple, just, you think everybody in the whole world is staring at it, you know, and it just drives you crazy, kind of, and, um. Honestly, that's kind of an understatement. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm a little obsessive compulsive about things. Well, I don't think it's just you. I mean, the reason I ask you about that is because it really impacts people, and it impacts their day-to-day, and it truly impacts their self-esteem, and it's not just women, it's men, too. And so I really want you to go a little bit in detail about that and let people know that you know what they're going through. Yeah, it's it's terrible. I mean, you just, you obsess about it and you worry about it and you just, uh, you get upset and angry about it. You know, I can see how people, you know, you always hear like when you do dermatology rotations in med school, the the derm guys are treating teenagers with acne and they're I remember the dermatologist telling us how devastated these kids are and how much it impacts their life and their self-esteem and all that. And I absolutely understand that now. You know, I never really understood it on a gut level, on on an emotional, you know, gut kick kind of level like I do now. And boy, the amount of time, energy, and effort that you can uh, expend trying to you know, treat it and work on it and worry about it and waste time. Yeah, not wasted, but you you understand what I'm saying. But uh, it it can be um, really just terrible. I can I can see why these, particularly in a teenager, somebody that's you know developing psychologically, just must really be devastating to them. I know it is to me. I mean, it is devastating to me. Right. Well, before we get into the treatments that have worked for you or that may work for others, will you talk a little bit about the different types of rosacea and maybe some of the causes of rosacea? 
Well, again, it's uh, nobody really knows what causes it causes rosacea. It usually is onset between the ages of 30 and 50, more common in women than men, though both get it. Um, it's probably immunological, some kind of autoimmune thing. It's also vascular. You get the dilated blood vessels. You get um, um, this inflammatory response, and uh, there's probably some genetics and family history that's involved. The nervous system is involved somehow. Nobody really understands what causes it exactly. Um, uh, very, very common. About 3 million cases a year in the United States, uh, about 5% of the population total. Um, and there there are different forms like you're talking about. The the first form, which, oh my gosh, it's a big word. It's erythematotelangiectatic. I had to read that. It's 24 letters, okay? <laughs> and so that didn't just spill off my tongue. That's where people get the redness of the face that you see people with the, across the nose and the cheeks and everything. Then there's the papulopustular form, which is what I kind of have. You get little pimples and papules and pustules and there's the the phimatus, where it's like the W.C. Fields. Um, you get the thickening of the skin, the abnormal change of the skin, the enlargement of the nose. And then there's an ocular form that causes a blepharitis. Um, and, you know, the it's more common in light-skinned people, um, particularly uh, the, the nickname is the curse of the Celts, meaning the European light-skinned people are much more likely to get it. Uh, Irish type skin, light skin. Uh, um, the I think you ask about the triggers. Is that what you ask about? I, well, sure. I didn't actually ask about that yet, but I was going to ask about the triggers. Oh, okay. You just ask about the causes. That's right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and there's um, there's known things that set it off in people and people that have this. There's certain triggers like sun or heat exposure, alcohol, either topical or if you drink alcohol. Uh, spicy foods, histamine-containing foods like the aged um, uh, uh, cheeses and the wines and the processed meats, those types of histamine-containing foods, tomatoes and citrus fruits. Um, people with higher vitamin D levels uh, will have outbreaks. Now, that's one of the things. You don't want your vitamin D levels too low because it's so important for immune response and and fighting diseases and infections, but you also don't want it too, too high either. Um, there's certain B vitamin deficiencies that can that can trigger it. Um, interestingly, demodex mites, there's these little bitty skin mites that most people have on their skin. Everybody's probably horrified listening, but it just depends on the age that you're looking at. But somewhere between 25 and up to 100% of people have demodex mites on their skin. I've read somewhere in the distant past, I don't know how true this is, but it's passed down from mother to child. The The mites are actually passed from mother to child because it's close contact, how you get these things on your skin. And, uh, you know, the uh, oilier skins are more prone to it. If you have poor hygiene, I don't mean people are dirty or anything, but I mean, hey, you know, I'm outside working in the yard. I get dusty, dirty, cutting grass. I'll notice outbreaks then versus if I'm just inside doing stuff. Um, topical steroids can cause outbreaks where you put uh, steroid creams on your face, which you really shouldn't be doing without the advice of a dermatologist. Um, hairsprays are one of the big triggers. Now, hairspray, I've read the ingredients in the past, and I believe it's alcohol in the spray. So it's probably the alcohol, the topical overspray that hits your face that sets it off. So those are kind of the common triggers. Um, 
and everybody's different and you kind of learn over time what sets yours off and not and you learn to avoid those things. Can stress trigger rosacea outbreaks? It can. It absolutely can. Remember, any kind of emotional or physiological stress, fight or flight response, you get increased cortisol levels, you know, which is a steroid, can um, cause an outbreak. Um, all the adrenergic uh, surge that you get with that, absolutely, stress is a known trigger also. I, I meant to mention that. So what are some treatments for rosacea? You know, what are the treatments that you can read about and will you talk a little bit about the treatments that have worked for you? Yes, the the treatments, uh, rosacea can't be cured per se. Um, it can definitely be handled in most people to an acceptable degree. Um, the The first treatment is avoid triggers. That's that's the main thing. The, the things that you know set off your skin, stay away from it. Uh, so really for people to determine triggers, they should really keep a journal. They should just make notes on days that they're having outbreaks of maybe the foods that they've eaten, any exposures, like if they've been outside, if they've been sweaty, if they've been hot, and then also make a note if you believe you had any extra stress during that time frame. Right. And certain types of makeups for women, you know, thing, just anything, anything that's different that you've noticed set things off. So that's the first treatment is avoid the triggers. You should wear sunscreen. Sun definitely makes most people start having an outbreak. And vitamin A supplementation helps. Now, do be careful. It's a fat-soluble vitamin. You just want to take the recommended amount. You can overdose on fat-soluble vitamins. Um, and after that, you get into oral treatment like antibiotics and things that have to be prescribed by a physician. Minocycline and doxycycline are the most common ones that are used. Um, maybe flagyl, the generic name is metronidazole, some sulfa drugs like Bactrim, and Accutane, the, the isotretinoins. Um, topical treatments, most people do best using Selsun Blue Shampoo as a, as a cleanser. There's benzoyl peroxide. There's a lot of overlap here with acne, you'll notice. Uh, benzoyl peroxide is topically metrogel and clindogel, which is the metronidazole and the, the clindamycin, both topical antibiotics. Um, the Volterin gel, which is diclofenac, it's an anti-inflammatory. That's one of the newer things people have been doing studies on, which actually helps me tremendously. Um, the the topical Retin-A's, uh, they help. Uh, topical Ivermectin, if people have the Demodex problem, that helps. Azelaic acid is uh, one of the topical acids that helps tremendously. That also is probably the core thing that helps me the most is azelaic acid. I can't say enough good stuff about that for me. And the, and the treatments, different treatments help different people. What works for one person doesn't necessarily help for another one. Topical sulfa helps, just like oral sulfa helps. There's new stuff I've been reading about, the topical vasoconstrictors where people have the, the dilated blood vessels and the real reddening of the face. They're using like the Afrin, uh, oxy, I think it's oxymetazolone is the, metazoline is the generic name of it. It vasoconstricts and makes the redness less apparent. There's another one, bromonidine or something like that, that also vasoconstricts. I'm not familiar with these. I've never prescribed them or anything, but I have been reading about those lately. Another thing that helps with the Demodex problem is the Clearidex, which is a tea tree oil derivative. They found out the one chemical in there that 
that actually works with tea tree oil topically and you can use Cleardex to clear up the skin. That helps a lot of people. And then after that, you're into laser treatments and light therapies. The laser treatments do a lot for the redness and to take away that excessive uh, blood vessel appearance that people have, that redness and everything. And they can also use ablative lasers if somebody has the the abnormal thickening of the skin of the nose and everything and kind of reshape the nose. So there's things that dermatologists can do with lasers and surgeons can do with lasers that are really fascinating. Now, usually by that point, people are well-established with a dermatologist like Hallie or her group, and they can get them in the right direction to the people that specialize in that kind of stuff. You can it really is a devastating problem. Emotionally, people have to go out and make a living and face other people, and you're sitting there obsessing and worrying about the way you look, and I, I understand. it's It can be really bad and devastating. Absolutely. So basically, just to kind of recap for anyone listening who maybe they're not set up with a dermatologist yet, we... We hope by now you have a primary care provider. If not, please establish a relationship with a primary care provider. But between now and seeing your doctor, we say keep a journal. Like we, you know, just to recap, keep a journal, write down anything that you feel like may have triggered your outbreak. And you can start with trying using a cleanser like Seltzer Blue, the medicated Seltzer Blue shampoo. That's what we both use, actually. If you have a cleanser that you feel like works for you, please use it. I have personally never had luck with any other cleanser myself, personally. I also use that as well. And then from there, get in with your provider and try some of these other things that Mark's talked about today. Is there anything else you think you should add about rosacea? Well, I, I just wish that people would go see somebody sooner. I discovered this, you know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of like, I think I'm like a doctor and I'm so smart and I'm supposed to know everything. So I had to suffer through all this on my own. I wish I had gone to a dermatologist years ago and they would have steered me in the right direction instead of me stumbling across all of this and treating myself with over-the-counter stuff, this, that, and the other. I think professional help would have alleviated a lot of difficulties for me and so I, I think people should go to their primary care doctor and should reach out to the dermatology clinic and, and try to get help sooner rather than suffer for years absolutely so for anyone listening remember you can find us at markedmedicine.com if you have any questions anything you'd like to ask mark maybe you'd like to ask some things about your rosacea you can find the ask dr mark tab you can submit your questions there you can also sign up for our email list to receive our newsletter that will keep you up to date on all the things that are happening here at marked medicine and thank y'all so much for listening we hope that you'll join us next week